0: everyone and welcome to the Balanced Purpose Podcast. My name is Ray Trevino and I am your host. Each week we will explore the essential elements of living a fulfilling, balanced and meaningful life. Our podcast brings together entrepreneurs, business executives, coaches, and everyday people like you and me who have seen challenges and have overcome adversities to create success and find balance in their lives. Whether you're a young professional seeking to make an impact in your career, a parent looking to balance work and family life, or a retiree seeking to create a new purpose, our podcast is something for everyone. So join us as we delve into the world of living a balanced and purposeful life and discover how you can create a life of balance and purpose for yourself. Today's guest, Dr. Kyler Shumway, is the president and chief clinical officer of Deep Eddy Psychotherapy, one of the leading mental health practices in Texas. He is also a best-selling author with his fourth book called Neurodiversity and the Myth of Normal. It's coming out later this year as an Amazon Audible original series. He has been featured by Forbes, The New York Times, CNN, and more for his work in combating the loneliness epidemic. Dr. Shumway and his team at Deep Eddy Psychotherapy are on a mission to give Texans the therapy experience they deserve. Dr. Shumway, welcome to our show. Uh,
1: glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, it's, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, if you don't mind, would you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah.
1: So I grew up in the middle of nowhere, also known as Idaho, on a teeny tiny farm and much like other kids who grow up in the country, raising animals and crops and things like that. One thing that set me apart from other kids is I learned from a pretty early age that I was wired a little bit differently. People are highly stimulating for me, so I would get anxious or worked up meeting strangers or being around other people, and uh, as I got older, I didn't get better uh, because I would avoid folks or I would, you know, try to stick to what was comfortable. It didn't help that I was bullied as a kid, and so uh, as I grew and uh, became um, uh, more the person that I am today. I think that there were uh, opportunities to overcome some of those fears that I had when I was younger and to continue to grow. Uh, And I went from teeny tiny town in the middle of nowhere in Idaho to Duke University where I was a full ride shot putter and uh, fell in love with psychology Ended up becoming a, a clinical psychologist through some of my work and one thing leads to another. I'm in Oregon, getting my doctorate, working as a crisis counselor, then came down to Texas for my residency year at Baylor, Scott & White, and fell in love with Texas immediately. I knew that Texas was the right place because I went to HEB and was like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. They have everything here. And then I went to the cheese section of HEB and I was like, Oh my gosh. They have a cheese section just for cheese. And then I looked at the price tag on the cheese and I was like, oh, my gosh, they're giving it away. Like, this is so perfect. Uh, So immediately fell in love with Texas and really love this community. Uh, There's so many wonderful people. It's a great place to be even when temperatures in triple digits wore weeks on end, Uh, but here we are and we're surviving. And so, uh, where I am today, as Ray mentioned, I'm our president and chief clinical officer here at Deep Eddy Psychotherapy. We're one of the leading outpatient mental health practices here in Texas. We serve crib to coffin, so to speak, all ages, kids, families, adults, individual therapy, couples therapy, assessment, all sorts of things. And we're doing so in a state that was recently ranked worst in the country when it comes to access to mental health care. So the work that we're doing feels just so incredibly meaningful and important, and it's a a privilege to be able to be a part of this team. So I'm just excited to be here to connect with you guys and and learn a little bit more about what you're doing and the message that you're sharing with your communities and glad to be a part of
0: it. We love that we have you here. Welcome to Texas. As The old Creed song would say, we welcome you with arms wide open. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Now, one thing that you had mentioned, Dr. Shumway, is that you grew up with anxiety, which is kind of hard to believe because you have one of my favorite TED Talks of all time. You know, the story behind it is just, it's a great story, it's a great talk, and you don't seem anxious or nervous or anything at all. When did you first feel that you had anxiety as a child? Is it something that was... Early onset, or have you always had it?
1: I remember being probably kindergarten age and this just being normal for me. Parents would invite their friends over or we would have people from church visit or, or different things like that and didn't want to be around them, felt uncomfortable, wanted to be in my room playing with my toys. And I thought that's just how... Everybody was. And I think there's there's a degree of normalcy. Kids can be shy. Strangers can feel awkward. And that's that's normal and healthy. And for me, it was so much more extreme. Uh, I remember being sent to school, first grade, second grade, third grade. I think I ran away from school uh, first day every year mm. because I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be around all these new people, all this newness. So I think that it became more clear as I started to notice other kids moving in the world differently than me. And really, it's almost like a sense of motivation or a desire for moving towards comfort, uh, which is also tied into wanting to move away from the things that scare you or, or frighten you. And so for me, it was both I want to be on my own, I'd rather be reading a book or something else, uh, as well as these people make me feel uncomfortable. And so I'll, that's that's what I want to do. And it, it really creates a cycle that feeds itself over time as, you know, this is sort of your tendency. People are stimulating. You'd rather be alone Then the way you engage in the environment and your behavior reinforces itself over time. And so for so many folks with social anxiety, they really resonate with the idea of it always kind of being there in the passenger seat of your car and always sort of present, but then with time, unless things change, unless you start to learn how to drive in the direction that you want to, even with anxiety there, then anxiety takes the wheel. So I think that was a big part of what worked for me is with the help of good therapists, good mentors, coaches, learning how to still do the things that were important to me, even when anxiety was present. So it's, you know, even right now, I'm noticing my heart rate is up. Uh, I can feel myself a little... Tense, a little shaky, uh, and that's that's anxiety being there in the passenger seat. Because I've heard that feedback before of, you don't come across as anxious or, or nervous, but it's more like a duck sitting on water with their feet frantically moving under the water.
0: <laughs> what a great analogy. Now, when you were a child going through this, were there any signs? Did you ever vocalize this to your parents? Or is it something that you just kind of held inside and it just kind of built over time?
1: In terms of my parents, this was something that I can imagine made their parenting experience pretty challenging because it was constantly present. We would be going to church and I'd be faking sick because I didn't want to go to church or we needed to take me to the doctor's office or the dentist or grocery shopping or sometimes even hanging out with other kids, friends of mine. And my parents had to spend time coaching me up, getting me ready, trying to help me stay calm, stay focused. And so for them, it was I think something that they had to learn how to parent around and made things very difficult. But the thing that my parents did really well is they stayed very compassionate despite the challenge. So expressing a lot of love and support, it was never a punishment for not being able to follow through with some things. And so it I think that's such a healthy way to approach raising a kid with social anxiety.
0: How long did you suffer with this intense anxiety to where you would pretend being sick and just try and get out of going to things? Was this something that took you through high school or is this something that stopped and you found other ways to cope?
1: I think it was a combination of things. So as I went from high school to college, continuing as a collegiate athlete, still competing, I went from being in the top 10 nationally as a shot putter in high school to in college. I was really, really struggling. For those of you who don't know, when you go from high school shot put to college shot put, the ball is bigger, it's heavier. It's quite a challenge to make that adaptation. But also the pressure of, holy smokes, now I'm a college athlete. There are hundreds of people watching. so intense. That was so much for me to handle. I remember... My coach would get frustrated because in practice I would do really well. And then every time competition rolled around, I would get caught up in my head and thinking about other people watching. And so there it was showing up once more. And that didn't stop me from continuing all four years while I was in college. Something that I, I learned how to move with easier over time and learned little tricks and tips and hacks for managing the anxiety. But really, I think what changed the most was when I started learning how to become a therapist. As I became a therapist, I realized that the anxious wiring that's just part of who I am is not necessarily a disease or something that I needed to get rid of. It was something that I needed to learn how to accept and make peace with as this is going to be present as as part of my lived experience. And the more that I try to fight it, ignore it, reject it, harder it's going to be to actually change. Carl Rogers, he was the founding father of one of the most popular therapy approaches uh, in the field of mental health. He said, only when I am able to fully accept myself am I able to change. And so I think that was a big part of it for me was learning how to come to that place of acceptance and realization and then being willing to make choices that feel uncomfortable, that align with my values, that feel important to me so that I can look back and feel good about the life that I lived, even if it wasn't comfortable.
0: Was there a pivotal moment that led you to that place? I guess we can call it an aha moment that led you to discover yourself and say, wow, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. And this is what I'm going to do. So
1: during graduate school, I was working as a student therapist at a school system as sort of a school counselor. And my supervisor, one day, she called me and she sounded terrible. She super raspy and she's like, Kyler, I'm, I'm super sick and I need you to go and give this presentation for me in front of a whole bunch of people and I, I'm not going to be able to do it so you, you're going to have to do it. And I completely freaked out because public speaking was hard enough as it was but then not having time to prepare and holy smokes, I've got to pony up and do this. So... I didn't want to make my supervisor upset and wanted to do a good job, and so I ended up saying yes. And the next day, I go to this Mothers of Preschoolers gathering. There's a few hundred mothers present, and I'm supposed to give a presentation on perinatal depression as a man with no kids. So here I am trying to talk to all these moms about how they should mom through their mental illness, and quite a challenge. Uh, I tell you what, I got in front of that crowd, and I gave it my all, and the presentation was awful it was so bad i was stumbling all over the place i couldn't keep track of my thoughts i was sweating buckets i ran over time and after the disaster of a presentation finally ended one of the moms came up to me and she thanked me for my time and she said that she was interested in learning more about therapy she thought that she might have depression and so there was this part of me that sort of woke up and realized gosh even if I'm terrible at this. <laughs> even if anxiety shows up, even if I stumble, even if it's hard, I can make a difference for other people and uh, that got me hooked. So I uh, got hooked on this idea of um, being able to help even if it's hard, being able to make a difference uh, and letting anxiety be there without having it rule my life and make the choices for me. So doesn't mean that the butterflies went away uh, but the butterflies fly in formation uh, so I'm able to move through things and and still do it even if it's
0: difficult I love that quote the butterflies fly in formation so you found a way to control the butterflies so you go from this horrifying speech in front of hundreds of mothers that was awful in your words which I'm, I'm sure it was pretty good it couldn't have been that bad you know <laughs> but into a keynote speaker with a, a Great TEDx talk. So this is something that you do normally. What path did you take to be able to become the Dr. Kyler Shumway, who's a keynote speaker and given phenomenal TED Talks? What, what was the path that got you there?
1: I think what got me from being in that room with these moms, giving a bad talk and having this realization of I can make an impact even if I don't think that I'm good at this or even if I I feel like I'm failing or even if I don't think it'll make a difference uh, to this is my day job. I'm talking to people all the time. I'm giving talks. I'm going to conferences. I think the thing that led me from there to here was a deep commitment to continuing to move towards this, this new purpose in life, recognizing that it didn't need to all be about feeling comfortable. It didn't need to all be about necessarily it needed to be about making an impact in a world that that really needs the help. Something that seems as basic as learning how to practice good self-care, or learning how to set good boundaries with your work so you're not burned out, or these ideas that seem maybe basic on the surface or, or even common knowledge to some people turns out aren't. And the more that you can share these concepts with the world, the more that you can take the science of psychology and share it with others. The the more I think society gets better over time, the more we're able to make a difference as a community. And it feels really good to be able to help people in that way. So,
0: and so, how many how many speaking events do you do annually?
1: Prior to COVID, I was speaking at typically two or three events per month. Well, wow. uh, so it was, it was really moving quickly, and then COVID happened. Everything shut down. Currently, picking back up where we were pre-COVID, and uh, there were some webinars that were happening during that time, but it's, it's so different and special being able to be in person with people at conferences and being able to have those relationships. So these days, it's closer to one a month, maybe two. Uh, it really just depends on whether or not the content that I'm able to share or the ideas that I'm offering are really needed by the community. So more recently, I've been doing some speaking with the University of Texas, talking about relationships and helping create spaces for acceptance with neurodiversity, whether it's a friend or a loved one or somebody that you're managing as a leader or an employer. How can you make space for difference and be more inclusive? So that's more of what I'm doing these days.
0: So when you say space for for difference. Can you elaborate on that as far as in a work environment or social environment?
1: Yeah. So, if you know anything about motorcycles, then you've probably heard of what's called an ape hanger or Harley motorcycles. They have those really high up chopper handlebars mm-hmm. and it's been like that for quite some time. They look super cool. They've gotten sort of higher over the years and if you've ever actually ridden one of those, you know that they're not comfortable at all. <laughs> or, or, or practical, because your hands start to lose circulation, and it's hard to, to make turns on a rapid basis, but that's kind of how we've always done it. Um, and so, society's kind of like that in more ways than we care to admit. We're doing it this way because that's how it's always done. If you go to a restaurant, you're supposed to walk up and order at the front, and they make their food, and, and it comes to you, and. There's just sort of a script anywhere you look in society. And that shows up in relationships too. So it might be that you expect your friends to wake up and go to bed at a certain time, which might seem silly, but that's not the case for everybody. It might be that you want people to be interacting with you in a certain way. Maybe you prefer face-to-face conversation or you prefer email or text or whatever it might be. So um, some of these... Ape hangers, these high handlebars that we have as society, I think are worth questioning or breaking down a little bit so that folks who maybe they like to sleep in until two in the afternoon every day, that that's not seen as a sign of laziness. It's seen as a sign of difference. And can we create space and relationships for folks who who may want to live that way? You know, as long as people aren't living in a way that causes harm or puts other people at risk or danger, are there ways that we can as people as a society make space for everybody regardless of their abilities or preferences.
0: So how do you begin that process of space for difference and what does the outcome look like? And then do you think that someone wanting to sleep in till 2 is just part of their identity, it's part of who they are and there's there's actually something else? For for the
1: first piece in terms of creating space for other people and how do you even start? It really starts with curiosity. So being curious about other people, being curious about yourself. There may be ways that you make yourself suffer just because of the the ape-hanger mentality. It's, you know, I, I put on a shirt and tie to go to work because that's how you're supposed to go to work. You want to wear a shirt and tie, even if the collar is really uncomfortable for you and There's no specific rule that says you have to. It's just how that's how other people are doing it. Is there a way that you can be curious about that? And even just raise the question of, does it have to be this way? So do we all need to wake up at seven in the morning or eight in the morning? Or is it okay for some people to wake up later? Um, Do we all have to make eye contact during conversation? Or is it okay if some people prefer not to make eye contact? So it starts with that curiosity and asking the question and being willing to let go of some of the things that really don't make a difference. For example, you could have a wonderful conversation with a person who prefers not to make eye contact or eye contact doesn't come naturally, which is pretty common in the autistic community, Uh, but you can still connect. You can still have that interaction and be together. The eye contact piece, uh, some people would argue it's the the, the windows into the soul and that's how you can really get to know a person. And uh, I think that's an assumption mm-hmm. that we make and maybe that's not the case for everybody. So even just raising the question and and asking that is I think really the the first step. And, and then in, in terms of the question about identity or pathology, that's something that, that we've been asking for a long time as a field in psychology. Uh, how do you know when somebody has something wrong with them uh, versus when somebody is different, and are those the same, are those those other concepts? So for a long time, we used to think that autism, for example, was a disease, Uh, it was a sickness that needed to be cured, there's still people who are looking to find cures for autism, or how do we come up with some magic pill or or treatment that makes autistic people different, or uh, uh, more normal, so to speak, Um, and so uh, really, I think being able to recognize a person as a person, and see them as a person first, and then their challenges, their difficulties second, and and looking at it more from an environmental lens. So there's the environmental model of disability. So in the environmental model of disability, a person's ability to engage with the world is a product of who they are and the environment around them. So. If you can't walk, for example, you need a wheelchair to get around. If your city has ramps everywhere and the doorways are all open, you're not going to experience much disability because you'll still be able to go most places. But if you live somewhere that doesn't accommodate, then life's going to be really hard. You're going to experience a lot of disability. So you can apply that in a lot of different ways. How can we think about creating environments, spaces, relationships? that focus on the person that accommodate and help them live well and, and according to their values, even when there's difference.
0: Well, that makes sense. And then it gets me thinking, how do you even balance that out? Like that's a task in itself, you know, and, and you said a key statement in my opinion, when you get to know a person, I think it begins with love, you know, getting to know a person as a person. And the more that we can love and treat each other with kindness, that, is half the battle right there in itself, because the more love and kindness that we share and open up, the more other people are willing to open up. I think that we live in in crazy times right now, where our identities are becoming skewed by the things we see on TV and on social media, where nobody is really getting the opportunity to get to learn or get to know anyone else. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I started the Balanced Purpose podcast, is because it's it's a battle, right? And how can we spread love? and kindness and let everyone know that they are accepted. You know, you don't have to film a TikTok video in front of a Lamborghini with a handful of cash to be accepted in my book, right? You be you, just give me a hug, tell me you love me and you appreciate me and we're here for each other. And so it's quite the battle. And then when you throw disabilities into there, I I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it is for, for groups of people because I don't want to categorize, you know, we are all human, right? And how can we spread the message of love? And, and you're already doing it, and one person at a time. I think I heard one of your one of your talks where you said that as long as you get to help one person in, in that area or in that arena, your job is done. Now, I want to talk about Dr. Shumway for a little while. What does a normal day in your life look like? I want to see how Kyler finds balance and peace in his own life, because I can imagine that you're taking on the problems of so many people right? And I can look into your eyes and know that you care for each individual and, and it could probably weigh on you. So I want to see how you find balance and peace and love in your own life.
1: I don't think that's a question I've, I've reflected on for quite some time. And, and even trying to map out a normal day for Kyler, uh, I think my days tend to be pretty abnormal. I think that there's Some organized chaos to the way that I approach my life. I've got certain things in place that help me going. I've got the rhythm of working out on a regular basis. I'm really into powerlifting and always have been. So that's something that keeps me centered, keeps me in my body, keeps me focused. So that keeps me on a rhythm. I have people that I'm meeting with during the week. So I've got team members who depend on me, folks that I'm connecting with, having conversations with to help my organization thrive and and continue to grow and impact the lives of other people. And then I think outside of work and responsibilities and self-care, there are other things that really give me great meaning and and joy, and those come from my relationship. So my relationship with my my wife, Uh, we're coming up on our 12-year wedding anniversary in just a couple of weeks. I've got some really wonderful friends. Dan Wendler is somebody who's been in my life for a long time and we love lifting weights together, playing video games, talking about feelings, feeling feelings, thinking about how we can uh, share new ideas and connect with others in new ways. And he and I both share a huge passion about making a difference with the the loneliness epidemic because there's studies still coming out even before covid Adults in America are so disconnected from one another, especially men. Men have a really hard time making friends, keeping friends, and there are plenty of resources in place for kids to get connected and get to know each other through school and other common circles, but when you get to adulthood, it's almost like you're supposed to have it all figured out and you got your friends in place and that's just not true for everybody, so it's really fun and enjoyable for me to be able to just connect with my people and think about The ways that we can be living life to the fullest, the way that we can enjoy the richness of uh, going on adventures, playing games, living well and being healthy. And so I think that that's where I draw so much of my inspiration is my relationships, Dungeons and Dragons group, workout buddies, you name it. There are always people who are telling part of the story uh, together. And that's, that's something I really enjoy.
0: Well, that's inspirational. So how do you define purpose in your life?
1: Purpose in my life comes down to really two things. I think one, mending the broken world. There's so much need and having my own story of being hurt, causing hurt, recognizing that we're all suffering and wanting to make an impact, wanting to make a difference that's something that's incredibly meaningful for me. Uh, I like to ask my therapy clients the tombstone question. What do you want written on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? That's the thing that I think energizes me and helps get me through the hard times is keeping in mind there's a mission that we're trying to follow. There are people who really need help. There are folks who without the right help and care may not have a great life or may not have a life. And so. Uh, There's a difference to be made there. And then I think the second purpose, uh, so you could almost define these as work hard, play hard. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. I think the second purpose is really to live an enriched, enjoyable life, to enjoy the ride, to be connected to my friends and family, to go on trips and travel and experience other cultures and other people to read and and uh, play through stories through uh, whether it's a video game or learning from other people listening to speeches or talks or going to conferences all of these experiences help us i think get a better grasp on what is life all about how do we get closer to that meaning of life and that purpose and i think it's it's Important to uh, recognize that we're not just humans here to do things and accomplish things. We're human beings, not human mm-hmm. doings. Uh, so, how do you be in the world? How do you uh, experience all there is to experience? So, I think that's that's the second fork uh, for me, and uh, something that I really enjoy.
0: Yeah, that second fork is a great blueprint for discovering your purpose. You know, find out what you like, travel, listen to conferences just do different things, get out, be a human being. And so that's, that's excellent advice. Now, in today's fast paced world, as we had mentioned before, there's a ton of stuff going on. It's a very, very dark place, right? And our mission and our goal is to be the light in the darkness. But how do you keep yourself focused and connected to your sense of purpose amidst all of this noise around us?
1: It really starts by beginning your day on your own agenda. So, so many of us Wake up, what do we do? You grab your phone, you go to social media, you look at other people's lives and the things in the news and uh, feel jealous of that person who got a raise or has a six-pack or, you know, they've got their three kids or whatever else, the signs of success, the things that uh, put pressure on us to live in a certain way, to follow a certain purpose. That purpose might not be truly our own. So it's it's really important to start off your day or whenever it is you wake up, even if it's two in the afternoon, and take a moment to reset and be intentional. Think about what do you really care about, what matters most to you? And how can you move a little closer to that today? What are the ways that you can live that life without just mindlessly stumbling through your day? Can you be mindful? Can you pay attention? Can you be focused? in a way that feels right for you. So I think it really starts with that. And then if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it's that pyramid that we all see in our Psychology 101 classes. Too many of us tend to focus on the levels of Maslow's hierarchy that are higher up than we need to. So we're not thinking about, are we eating well? Are we sleeping well? Are we taking good care of our bodies? Because your mind is a product of biological processes. So the more that you take care of your body, the more that you're taking care of your health, that translates to brain health, that translates to emotional well-being and functioning. And so doing things that focus on Maslow's bottom and uh, thinking about how can you really take good care of your physical self so that everything else can can sort of fall into place. Uh, And then as you're going through your day, try to be mindful and notice when you feel pulled to act in a certain way, do something different uh, based on somebody else's agenda or, or following somebody else's value. So it's really about recentering, staying focused, and uh, the things that matter most to you. And I think that all of those things come together to really help me uh, stay focused on my purpose, for me to come back to me and my family, and, and the things that I care about most.
0: Wonderful. Now, my final question: You've had an incredible journey you know, from anxiety, bullying, to being a keynote speaker, an author, a psychologist, CEO, what is some advice you would give to your teenage self, if you're able to go back and talk to yourself uh, on discovering your purpose and kind of giving yourself advice on on what to look forward to? If I could go back to my teenage self,
1: there's probably one lesson that I would want to share that I don't think teenage me was ready to hear. So teenage Kyler was so focused on making it over the next hurdle, accomplishing the next thing. You gotta work hard, you gotta stay driven, you gotta sacrifice your needs for the sake of accomplishment. So I was accomplishing great things academically and through my sports, and there was this part of me that was driving all that motivation from a place of uh, self-doubt, and insecurity, and, and frankly, self-hatred. Not wanting to be who I am, needing to accomplish and get to somebody that I want to be. And so that, at the time, was seen as my only ticket to success. Uh, so the lesson that I would have wanted to give teenage Kyler is sort of like learning how to love yourself more, as basic or, or fundamental as that might seem, uh, so that you can learn to, to still achieve and live the way that you want to, but without needing to beat yourself up, without needing it to be about not being who you are anymore. Uh, so learning how to love myself and others more. If I could have done that at an earlier age, I'm not sure how my life might have turned out differently. I'm very thankful for how things are now. I'm very grateful for, for the life that I have, but I do wonder about the love that I might have been able to experience for myself, the the deeper love that I could have shared with people in my life along the way. So that would probably be the, the, the big lesson that I would want to share.
0: I love that. That's touching. I can feel it in my chest because I can relate, you know, if I could go back and love myself and not worry so much about acceptance from others, I don't want to say life would be different because I, I don't discount the journey. It led to who I am today. But if it's something that we could teach other people, because there are so many people in this world, kids, teenagers that just you know they want to be that person on tiktok or instagram that doesn't even love themselves right so i love that i love that kyler thank you for sharing that with us now if any of our listeners wanted to to get in touch with you uh, and know more about you and about your services is there a website they can go to to find information
1: absolutely so if you are in texas and you're curious about therapy or getting help for yourself or connecting with somebody like me so that you can work through your journey and find support. I strongly recommend going to Uh We are based all across the state of Texas. There's a lot of folks that we're trying to serve and help. We also offer online services. So uh, it's easy access and we accept most major insurances, which is different than other therapy practices in in the state. So. I think that's that's one route that, that you might consider. Another route is if you want to connect with me personally, you can connect to uh, my website, which is just kylorshamway.com. I'm always uh, trying to keep up with messages and, and respond to every single message that I receive. So uh, if you reach out to me, it might be a couple days, but I'll, I'll get back to you. And uh, always love just hearing stories, connecting with people, and being able to find ways to resource them and help them love themselves and others more. So uh, I, I, th- I think between Deep Eddie and, and my website, those are probably the best places to, to look.
0: Thank you. And we'll also upload these onto the show notes. That way listeners can just click and, and go. Well, Dr. Shumway, it's been a great time having you on the show today. I'm glad we had this opportunity to get together and kind of learn a little bit about you and, and keep spreading the love. So thank you. Thank you, Ray. This has been enjoyable and I loved your questions. Awesome. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, agreed. Balanced Purpose Podcast was created and hosted by me, Ray Trevino, and is produced and edited by Nick Goldney. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Check us out at BalancedPurposePodcast.com and on Instagram at Balanced Purpose Podcast. Finding your purpose is a journey, not a destination, and it takes time and effort to achieve balance. Make it a great day.